Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about historical movies and TV, anything that claims to be based on a true story, and we check how bad did they mess it up? What was life actually like during that time period? Well, that's why we're here, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. And my name's Mark, and I'm drinking coffee from a flowery mug, which suits my summary disposition. And I'm Michael Tynan, and I'm full of sandwiches. Uh, I'm Una Roddy, and I'm the token woman. That's right. We've got two <laughs> Ooh, seasons. We've got one. Yeah. I'd, I feel like after this, we should be good for another couple of seasons, but we did have to let one on. It is government mandated that when mm. you get to a certain point, you have to let the women in the room. It's disgusting, <laughs> but there you go. The woke agenda coming for us all. <laughs> uh, do you want to tell the story of uh, uh, the Handmaid's Tale podcast? Uh <laughs> Uh-oh, this sounds dangerous. <laughs> you were involved in this. Was I? Mark actually. What First I've heard of it. Mark was discover Mark was describing Jacob. Um I believe you were describing his voice in particular. You're like, oh, you can just tell that he does a podcast. And I was like, <clears throat> had never met Jacob. And uh and I was like, oh right, okay. And you being my usual like caustic self, Mark was like, Yeah, they've got a really good podcast on The Handmaid's Tale. And I just immediately replied, um, <laughs> yeah, just what the world needs Another white man talking about women's <laughs> rights <laughs> And we lived happily ever after <laughs> Yeah, little did you know Four years Fast later forward. I'd corner you in our shared living room And make you go on my other podcast <laughs> If you, yeah, if you live with Jacob You end up uh, just making podcasts eventually It's part of the deal <laughs> It is very much so um, Yeah, because we all met in work And now we don't work in the same place anymore We used to have Queen Maeve Studios Appropriate for this episode mm-hmm. uh, Named after the conference room in the office Called Queen Maeve uh, So we titled ourselves Queen Maeve Studios When we were recording back there um, But here we are now Talking about our first Irish film Woo! Woo! After three seasons uh, It took a while to get there I'm going to start maybe with a, a one sentence summary um, That goes like this for wolf walkers plantations and industry churn their way into a wild land and a young apprentice hunter whose father is tasked with wiping out the last wolf pack makes friends with a mysterious girl in the woods and ends up discovering the power of nature it's a long sentence. I well know. Done. There's a lot going on in this. There's film. a couple yeah. of apostrophes in there. So <laughs> honestly, like it's my favorite part of every episode is the one sentence. Like, like, no, you nailed it. Well done. Yeah, it's a great, great film. Yeah, that's. Like I said, it's our first Irish film. I know I'm partial to animation just in general, but uh, like we've talked about doing other stuff that's made in Ireland that's Mm -hmm. historical. But I watched this and I was like, this is one of the best films uh, I've seen in a long time. Not just like as a historical film, not just as an Irish film. It's an animated film uh, from uh, Cartoon Saloon. And yeah it's just it's just amazing. Do you want to tell us a bit (laughs) of details on how it was made? Yeah, like it, it has like it like it's success it has been extremely successful it was even oscar nominated it didn't win but you can't have everything uh <laughs> it came out in december 2020 and it was it did have a limited release in cinema but it mainly was just released onto apple tv uh where i saw it and i was delighted i've been kind of following this cartoon saloon uh story for uh going back about 10 years because there, it's a small animation studio based out of Kilkenny, and interestingly enough, this film is based in Kilkenny as well. Um, and um, 
I suppose they they've made two previous films. The uh, was it the Brendan and the Secret of Kells and um, the Song of the Sea. Song of the Sea, yeah. yeah, which were both absolutely brilliant too. It's like this is the third installment. Um, Wolf Walkers is the third installment of this Irish folklore trilogy, so to speak. So they won't be making any more Irish themed movies uh, for a while, I think. Uh, directed by Tom Moore, um, and it's also being produced by a Luxembourg company, better mention them anyway, uh, Melusine Productions. Oh. Yeah. And the music then, uh, Bruno Coulet and Keela, who, if anyone in Ireland oh, might I know, know Keela. Keela. Yeah, yeah, they, Keela. Everyone in Ireland has seen Keela. Yeah. If there's a festival, they just turn up. If you went to college you know? in Ireland, you've seen Keela. Like, there you go. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so they kind of always do the soundtracks for this type of film and that. In terms of the film, if you haven't seen it, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's ninety nine percent rating, and that's from like two hundred reviews, aggregate score. So, like, so is this the the highest rated movie we've done so far? Must be. I think it must be. Like, had a limited release in theaters, right? But I feel like, yeah, not that many people necessarily know about it. A strong recommendation uh, from me, and I think all of us here. Yeah, I loved it as well. That was great. Just in terms of the cast, there's a few well-known uh, people. So Sean Bean kind of plays the hunter in the film, mm. um, who's excellent. Then you've got, for voiceovers, you've got Tommy Tiernan as well. He's so good. Yeah. This. Who kind of plays Sean Ogg, who is the hapless uh, kind like of bumpkin. woodcutter yeah. who gets locked in stocks uh, because he pisses off. I, I, I didn't realise that was him. I obviously didn't look at the credits. But just when you said it, I was like, oh my God, yeah, that's obviously Tommy Tiernan. Like <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So there's a couple of big names in there. Then apart from that, um, Maeve Ogg McTeer, who is our hero, uh, is Ava Whitaker, and then um, the daughter of Sean Bean in the film is Honor Navesey. So they're kind of a mixture of unknown and, and well-known yeah. uh, kind of voices in it, you know? Yeah, and uh, you mentioned the two previous films, uh, Secret of Kells, uh, Song of the Sea. Both are excellent. They're, we should say this is not like the end of a trilogy as such. It is a trilogy, but it's a trilogy thematically rather than mm. story-wise, yeah, right? So yeah. they take place during different times. Mm. Song of the Sea is in present day, but with mythology themes. Secret of Kells is about the Book of Kells uh, and that type of er- era. And they're disconnected, but they have a very similar vibe and style to them. Um, it's really interesting. It's kind of hard to describe the animation style, but it feels really unique and really beautiful. And a lot of the layouts are kind of... I don't know, flat, or there's a lot of thought put into composition. Um, don't really, we don't need to get into it in further detail, but check out the films. They're really e- good. Every, <laughs> every scene in the film could be a screensaver on your computer. That's it. That's yeah, it. Yeah, it's well yeah, no, it's well beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. It is well done, yeah. That's well put. Yeah. And uh, one of the reasons we have you on this time, Una, is that you actually uh, have some knowledge about Celtic mythology and that sort of thing. Uh, or at least you've researched it. <laughs> you have a degree in history, which is more than uh, most of us have here. And Una as well is the reincarnation of uh, the pirate queen, uh, Gráinne Ní Vail. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that's my own opinion. No, that's but, agreed yeah, upon. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's okay. pretty well agreed. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, like the, the having a degree in history is accurate. The Gráinne Ní comparison, not so sure. But um, yeah, it's funny that, it's funny that um, I am the one of... The two here of the three here that has a degree in history because I definitely have less interest and no <laughs> less about history than either of you, I would say for sure. 
<laughs> less interest and actually i'm leaving the podcast <laughs> right now um but we did bring you on to do a bit of talking about uh celtic mythology because this is a very yeah it's folklore it's about the the sort of uh crossing over of new uh plantations and new technology and industry as i alluded to just coming in and churning out the celtic myths and traditions that existed in this land ireland uh before then but before we get into the myths and stuff like that, let's start with something a bit more concrete. So, Mark, do you mind giving us uh, some context of what is going on in the world right now? Because to, to describe it very briefly in the film, uh, it's sort of set in this town and outside the town, they're cutting down all of the woods. Uh, it's kind of they're making a landscape less wild. And, it's a bit yeah. like, remind, sorry, but it's no. a bit like Isengard when the, yeah. or- the orcs come in and start cutting down the forest. <laughs> That's kind of what I was getting. So Cromwell is setting off yeah. by comparing Cromwell. Cromwell is Saruman. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. Hey, it could have been Sauron. It yeah. could have been worse. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so what, what is actually, it is a bit of a, not a mystery exactly when you're watching the film, but it presumes uh, some sort of understanding of the time period. Like it doesn't spoon feed you, I feel like, the historical details. It just gives you it throws you into it in a good way and you sort of learn what's going on from the context. But with that said, what is actually going on in Britain and Ireland at this time and what year are we starting out in here? So we're in the early part of the 17th century. So we're in the, we're in the 1640s when the movie, when the movie kicks off. But I think like it's important when you're talking about, or when I'm talking or anyone is talking about the, uh, the 1600s in Britain and Ireland that you will necessarily gravitate towards the character of Oliver Cromwell. He's sort of the the uh, the most important sort of you know in history the way you have this idea of the great man like the great man theory which doesn't mean great in a good sense but great in a big sense he's definitely the central figure of British and Irish uh, history at this point um, and he sort of embodies the first half of the century um, and the reason for that is he has done something that hadn't been previously done in uh, British history or Irish history and that is he overthrew the king and actually executed the king and became the leader of the British Isles in a very short-lived republic. Now, I use republic very advisedly. Like, it's not, it's not a republic in the way you would think now, but that is, what they, that, that is sort of what, what it was. It was referred to as the British Commonwealth. Um, so to give you a little bit of context as to why that happens is, um, so Cromwell was born in 1599, and this is, a, this is a really pivotal period in British history. Queen Elizabeth, the famous one that everyone knows, the, the, the quote-unquote... Red-haired. Ver- the red-haired, yeah. the virgin queen. Um, she is on her deathbed. She a virgin. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> That's that, sp- spurious accusations from Michael there. But, but she, um, she's on her deathbed uh, in, the, in the early part, at the turn of the century, basically. So, sorry, 1599. 1599. Yeah. So around the time Cromwell's born, um, she, she's on her deathbed. And famously has no heir um, and so what, what ends up happening is her closest relative is the king of scotland i think i've referenced this in previous episodes but anyway the king of scotland james stuart he becomes the king of england which is the, the thing the act that unites the crown of, of scotland and england rather than there being a conquest like people might be forgiven for thinking um now that's important because when he comes in he is responsible for developing the version of the Bible that everyone is familiar with, the English version of the Bible, the King James Bible. He's the King James. Now, that uh, uh, precipitates a, a like sort of a, a refreshed uh, wave of political unrest uh, around religious divisions in Britain and Ireland. 
there's a huge which is going to be a theme moving forward yeah that's, in it's, all it's, of Irish history it's, yeah. yeah yeah and and this period and the period immediately preceding it is it, it, look it's my opinion but is where the enmity between the, the Irish and the English actually comes from you'll often hear Irish people say 800 years I think that's a lot of nonsense really it's, it's, it's really from the Tudor period onwards this is, a, is this, this is probably the f- most fiery period. What's happened is Catholics all across Britain have been dispossessed um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the sort of the 70 years prior to Cromwell's birth. When he's born, when he's, when he's about five, there's an extremely famous Catholic terrorist attack on the British Parliament. It's carried out by Guy Fawkes, which is the, f- the, famous, uh, the famous incident that they, they celebrate now at bonfire night. Um, and also w- known from V for Vendetta, if you're not yes, from around yeah. here. <laughs> remember, remember the 5th of November. That's, that's when Fox and his, his gang tried to blow up Parliament because they were, they were essentially a gang of dispossessed Catholic gentry. Cromwell's family does quite well out of the dispossession of, of, Catholic, uh, of Catholic landowners in England. Initially, his family are uh, brewers. They, they make ale. But because Catholics are being forced off their land, that leaves a lot of open land for Protestants, which Cromwell's family are. So they gain uh, a minor noble title. So he comes from a family that has, has done really well out of the Protestant establishment. But he grows up and his formative years are in a period of, of there being like a Catholic terror. There's, there, there are alleged terrorist attacks going on all the way through England. Reds under the beds. Kind yeah, of yeah, exactly. So that, that, I think, that sort of informs some of his thinking. Um, what happens basically is James the, James, King James dies in uh, 1625 and he's replaced by his son Charles I now normally you'd say yeah that, that, that's, that's pretty okay but Charles I is a bit of a lad like, he's, he's, he's not really following his dad's steps he marries a Catholic woman as contemporary is- historians said <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's a, bit of a, he's a bit of a lad like you know so he, he marries a Catholic woman doesn't give a fuck what anyone has to say about the fact that he's married a Catholic woman he is a, a Protestant Anglican himself, but he, he doesn't really like this sort of the, the uh, strict side of, of, of uh, Anglican belief. He, he likes the flowery uh, pomp and circumstance of Catholicism. He he's actually quite enjoys the, the concepts around it. Central to that is Catholic monarchs traditionally hold absolute power, which means they, they believe they're appointed by God. So you can see why he'd be attracted to this kind of thing and he would marry a Catholic woman and be like, well, I really should be in charge and who's this parliament anyway? So at the same time, there's several wars going across Europe because it's Europe and it's always at war. Um, and Charles tries to levy taxes so that he can finance his, basically his friend to go on a nice bit of a jaunt of a war in Europe, a war that they can't hope to win and the parliament block him. So you get the first real instance uh, in like sort of... Uh, modern, uh, if I can use that term, um, history in England where the parliament will actually fights the king. They're against the king. They don't want to give taxes over for this thing. And I'm not going to go into the, the exhaustive detail about this, but he basically dissolves parliament. A new parliament is called. He dissolves it again and again and again. And it's, it just, it, it starts to build real division, divisive lines in British society between people who are backing the king and people who are backing the parliament. At the same time that this is happening, Cromwell uh, himself, at this point, he's, he's, in his, he's in his 20s, and he, he, we're not really sure what happens, but he gets ill at a certain point and sort of, sort of disappears off the scene for a while. And when he's come back, he's had a religious sort of moment, and he has abandoned 
his Protestant faith, his Anglican faith in favor of Puritanism. Now, Puritanism is like, any Americans listening to this will probably know who the Puritans are. They're just ludicrously hardcore, aggressively Protestant. Anti-crack. Uh, yeah, they don't, there's not, you're not to be having any fun here. You know, this, just everything in moderation, but, you know, unless Everything is closed on a Sunday. Yeah. Don't even go yeah. on a swing. Really brutal, <laughs> really brutal crackdown. But he, at this point, when he reappears on the scene, he reappears because he's elected to Parliament. So he becomes an MP, um, just in time for Charles to dissolve the Parliament again. But this time, the, the, the dissolved Parliament lasts for 11 years. So there's no Parliament, and the King is basically running the country as an absolute monarch for, uh, for 11 years. He makes a massive strategic error, Charles I. He tells the Scots who are largely Presbyterian, that they should really be his form of Anglican Christian. And the Scots famously don't like the English telling them what to do. So there's a large political row, and then the Scots invade England. Uh, and they, they, they do a good job of really wrecking the north of England. The king calls his, calls his banners, as they say, marches up north to sort the Scots out, and he, uh, he, he loses quite badly. Like The Scots give him a bit of a hiding. Like. Now, why is that important to the English? It's important because... We've had 11 years of no parliament and the king's trying to run things on his own and he's just dramatically and drastically failing to run the state. He, he's had a calamitous defeat against the Scots. And the, the, out, like the outcome of that defeat is basically he, he has to just accept, sorry about that, you, you, just, you do your own thing up there in Scotland. I promise I'll never bother you again. <laughs> Spoiler alert, he does bother them again. But, <laughs> you know, this, is, this, is, this offends the conservative Puritan and Protestant uh, uh, parliament. Eventually a new parliament is called. Uh, Charles sends in troops to try and get them to agree to his taxes. The, the uh, parliamentarians are tipped off. They run. Um, and essentially what starts is a civil war. So the parliamentarians have just had enough of the king. So they start rallying troops. The king also starts rallying troops. Cromwell joins the parliamentarian, parliamentarian army. It's here that he sort of distinguishes himself as a leader. He's not really from the, the high nobility, and he's not the leader of the army. The leader of the army is a guy called Fairfax. Um, but Cromwell distinguishes himself in some of the early battles where the, the king's forces are routed, and he earns the nickname uh, Ironside. because he, he's, he's just in the front line of a battle and somehow doesn't get killed. Much like the American Stonewall Jackson. He's, he's called Stonewall because he just didn't fear being shot. And the re- it's the same reason he was a pure. Just incredibly lucky. Much like Bjorn Ironside from Vikings. The exact same nickname. (laughs) And for the same reasons. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so he he distinguishes himself at at the Battle of Edgehill and then the Battle of uh, Marston Moor. Um, Cromwell's fame starts to grow because he wins battles just from a strategic point of view that really crippled the king's forces. They really, he's the guy who sort of delivers the size of cavalry charges that that smashed the, the, the royal line. Um, uh, basically, uh, what ends up happening is Cromwell uh, gets so popular among the troops that he he just the Parliament just appoint him. Uh, they just say, "Okay, look, you're just gonna you're just gonna run the show." So by 1645, he is the commander chief, essentially of the of the of the the British uh, 
the British military. We can't have one person running the country. Let's yeah. fix it. <laughs> oh, it gets worse than that. Oh, it gets one worse. person run the country. <laughs> oh, there is some, uh, yeah, there is some uh, fantastic oxymorons here. Like. And Mark, was was he known to use a lot of cruelty in his campaigns in England too and in Scotland or was he... Just hints of what's to come there. So his cruelty, <laughs> so, so Cromwell's cruelty would, would be, would be, I, I, w- I would suggest entirely religious. So, so there's, there's a pointer in the. This is called the English Civil Wars, and there's a pointer in this in, w- in which Charles basically strikes a deal with the Scots, and he says, "Okay, I'll convert everyone to Presbyterianism if you come down and help me." So the Scots go, "Yeah, we'll have a bit of that. That'll be hilarious. Make the English follow our our religion. Brilliant. Our silly religion. <laughs> our, our, our silly version instead of yeah, right. So, so the Scots invade again, but this time they're up against Cromwell's army, and Cromwell's army is it's not like. So the, like the king's army would be very loose and would be more like a medieval army the way you think of it. It would have pikemen and, and heavy infantry. and There would be, be some uh, uh, early sort of rifling and, and things like that, but they, they were very loose and it was based on sort of the gentry and honour and charge and all that nonsense. Cromwell is much more in, interested in what we would now recognise as an army. It's much more regimented. It's organised. They use flag signalling. They use horn signalling. They, they have manoeuvres. This is the new model army. Yeah, this is called the new model army. He drills these guys morning, noon and night. Like these, these are the first really standing professional army in England. They march north against the Scots, but this time the Scots get it real bad hiding. Like they, get, they get really, really badly beaten by Cromwell. So he's in a position now where he's beaten the Scots, he's beaten the king. So Parliament is called again. And after much political arguing, they decide they're going to execute the king. So this is sort of... This is highly unusual in British history. Like you don't, you don't normally have the king just being beheaded. But Cromwell's power—he's—he's—he's he's, he's a populist, hard, hard right-wing, religious fanatic, and he's—he's he's now in charge of England. Essentially, the Parliament is, is is scared of him, and they've agreed with him that they might execute the king. So they so they go ahead and they kill Charles the first. Um, and at this point, um, Cromwell has been. Has, has, has had a title sort of invented for himself, which is, he's called the Lord Protector. And that's the name in, in Wolf Walkers. He, it's never yeah. actually said, I think, Cromwell. No. It's always just Lord Protector. Lord, Lord so, Protector. And he looks like Cromwell. Yes. So we have to presume it's Cromwell, you know? And he does seem like shit crack in yeah. there also. He does. Yeah. Very yeah, yeah, you see, yeah. They're not, they're not kind to him, but it's, but nor, nor should they be. Uh, Even has that big dirty mole on his face, you know, that yeah. 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 But it's an interesting thing because the parliament actually vote to give him supreme power. So think about the, the, how ridiculous this is. They're completely, the whole war kicks off because they're aggrieved that a king is trying to rule with absolute power. They defeat the king and kill him and then vote away their own, their own parliamentary rights to a guy who is essentially a king in all but name. They actually go so far later on as to crown him. Cromwell is crowned, but he just doesn't take the name king. So, Why do you think they did that, if we're trying to understand it? Is it just because the, the war had been ongoing and they'd already been out of power for 11 years, and so it's kind of like, this is our guy, so he's cool? But yeah. Like, you're a bit still of completely like, losing that power as the parliament, though, right? For, for me, I think it's, I, I, I think it's, it's principally the... Why it seems so odd is our understanding, the modern British understanding of Cromwell, in my opinion, is very much after the fact. So, for example, there's a statue of this guy outside Parliament in London because he's regarded in, in English 
sort of almost folk history as like a defender of democracy because he used to go, he fought against absolute monarchy, even though he made himself an absolute monarch. And that, that concept, that modern concept has informed our understanding of the past. Were the parliamentarians really about democracy versus, versus absolute power? I would say they're actually about protecting their own group. And that was more to do with religion and land than political taxes. Yeah, and taxes, yeah. And it's certainly more to do with that uh, than it is to do with like any, any high moral concept of democracy. These, these people are not Democrats. I mean, you know, you'll be probably taught in English schools that they weren't. They weren't. They're just, just, just no evidence for that at all, really. That, that's, that's, a, that's a modern concept put on the past. Mm. Um, so Cromwell uh, is a hardcore, hard, hardcore uh, Puritan. Like, he doesn't even, like, even Protestants, he doesn't really like that much. He's, he's re- he can stomach them. But he can't stomach Catholics at all. Like some of the some of the quotes that are attributed to him around Catholics. Like at the time when he comes to Ireland, which is where the movie is set, um, and Ireland is his own sort of political mess at this point as well. And he refer- he says that he's convinced. This is I'm paraphrasing now, but he says something like, I'm, "I'm convinced that my actions against the Irish is the righteous judgment of God against these barbarous wretches." And he's calling them barbarous wretches because they're Catholics, not because they're Irish. It's nothing to do with their ethnicity. It's all to do with their religion. He's this absolute psychopath. And and they, they, they go around the place, I mean, in England as well, and this, this is often forgot from the Irish side, that, you know, we, we forget that the, the, the oppressive British governments that were in Ireland, they also oppressed British people. And they went, to, went about the place dis, disheartening people from their land and massacring. Like, they arrested Catholic priests all around Britain and Ireland, and they just, they just murdered them all. They just get rid of them all. There was famously in many rich houses the kind of secret passageway for the priest to hide. Yeah. Mm. You know the, the Game of Thrones actor, Kit Harrington. Mm. His ancestor is, is Robert Catesby. Robert Catesby is the guy who actually actually planned the, uh, the attack on Parliament that Guy Fawkes carried out. So his ancestor uh, was uh, Lord Catesby like, and was a famous Catholic rebel against, against the crown. Like. And there was a lot of that kind of stuff goes on that doesn't really get talked about, but it's because it was so brutally put down and, you know, history is written by the victors. You know, I had so. a really funny conversation once about that, um, like that being bonfire night in uh, the UK with a British friend of ours, and she was like, "Why don't you? Why do you celebrate bonfire night in August, like like the pagan festival, mm. and um, and not in November, like when we do?" And I was like, "Well, traditionally, we wouldn't really be super opposed to blowing up the British Parliament." Yeah. She was like, "Ah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, 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 fair yeah, enough." Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, like from from sort of sort of his his first appearance in Parliament around sixteen twenty eight, um, he uses his military career to put himself into a political power, much in the same way that somebody like Julius Caesar did. It's very very similar similar sort of circumstances. Like you win honor through uh, military exploits and you use that to attain power. By sixteen fifty six, he's basically in charge. By sixteen fifty seven, he's crowned. Um, he's he's completely in charge. What happens then? Yeah, sixteen fifty eight. His daughter dies, and it seemed to really badly affect him uh, psychologically. And he sort of withdrew from public life. Um, he still held absolute power, but things were being run by diktats and by his men. They would give orders, and that's what Parliament would carry out. That's how taxes were raised and things. But by September sixteen fifty eight, he he'd actually died. And I, I, I the reason I wanted to mention it is because famously there was this horrendous storm. This like massive, massive storm hit the British Isles in 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 uh so it hit like Jersey and Guernsey around there, hit down there, smashed into the south of England, uh, 
and uh, probably Scotland and Ireland were grand because it was like most it was Britain like um, that it hit but it was just like famously bad storm and he died in the middle of this storm and the, the, the thing that the Catholics said about it was like Satan had come back personally to take him to hell or God, <laughs> God's rat you know yeah no. <laughs> you know so it would be like you know the Welsh miners talking about Thatcher's death like you know we're, we're, we're all going to get a shovel and dig a hole so deep we can give her back to Satan like, yeah, and, and Mark did he try and hand over power to his son he did this is the yeah. other thing that I always think is comical Slyful. when 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 well, I say I keep saying British, but it really is just the English. Like in, in the in this, in the, not to just needle the English, but the Scots don't have any love for Cromwell, like, but it's or nor did the Welsh. But it's uh, it's interesting that he's re- held up by the in English history as this like uh, savior of parliamentary democracy when he literally handed the reins over to his son in the least democratic transition of power in the history of England. Like you know what I mean? It's just literally they just appoint his son, but his son is well. Some sources will say he's just not really interested. He doesn't want to know. He actually doesn't want the power. Other people say he's just a bit of a weakling. Um, he doesn't last. His son Richard. He doesn't last. He's um, yeah. He's he's killed. And uh, <laughs> they, how uh, old is he when he dies? More or less. <laughs> Richard, I'm not sure. Or... Would, would like. I mean, not more than forty. Like you know, he sure. and he's he's uh, he's killed. And uh, by 1660, the royal line. Of Charles is restored. Charles' son, Charles II, they just crown him king. They go, oh, f- fuck that Commonwealth, thing. fuck that r- r- uh, democracy thing. Let's just get a king back because they don't know what else to do mm. because it's the 1600s. Everyone else has got a king. Yeah, we need you know? to fit in. <laughs> but interestingly, for for this like great uh, defender of the people in England and stuff, Cromwell's body is disinterred in 1661, and he's beheaded and gallowed like in like the quarter room. So, you know. The modern concept is this guy, isn't he great? He defended the parliament against the absolute monarchy and Catholicism and all. If he was that great, then why did like less than a generation later did you take him out of his grave to hack his body to pieces? Like he's not obviously not that popular, you know? There was a big backlash though, wasn't there? And the after, towards the end where people were more and more kind of back in love with their royals again. Yeah, like Charles came in and, and, and like there's a the whole sixteen hundreds, that really that whole century is pretty messy in terms in terms of uh, British royal power and, and like the, the love or, or not not love of the king. It doesn't go brilliantly well for Charles either or hit the next in line. All of which uh subsequently leads to a period they call the Glorious Revolution where there's a, a Dutch king comes in and, and there's another battle in Ireland and another massacre in Ireland. But yeah. <laughs> so that, is, that's Cromwell. Basically. Yeah, this is all well and good and appreciate the context, but let's rewind the tape a bit now. <laughs> Cromwell's not dead, he's in Ireland. Uh <laughs> dead inside. Yeah. But, yeah. Um so why why is he in Ireland in the time period of the film? Uh do we want to get into that? I heard tell of a rebellion, like one of many, uh, in Ireland that may have spurned him to to come on over and uh impose some law and order. Yeah, so as Mark kind of mentioned... It's a very present way of putting it, isn't it? Impose law and order on the Catholics. (laughs) Those Uh, unruly Catholics. (laughs) Uh, Well, as Mark kind of mentioned, like Ireland at this time in the 1650s, 1640s, it was an ethnic and religious mess. It's probably the easiest way of putting it. (laughs) Sure, it's not Um, how we do things here. (laughs) Essentially, the kingdom itself because it had been raised to a kingdom uh by this stage by the the english monarchs it had um 
there were, it, it was divided into different territories. So you essentially had an area which kind of ran in the east of Ireland. So it was called the Pale and it ran from kind of Dundalk, just north of Dublin, to Dalky in south of Dublin in a sort of an arc um, that stretched into kind of Kildare. And that was sort of the English enclave and it was loyal to the English crown. And it would have been the seat of administration in Dublin and all this type of thing. Um, But then you would have had, uh, in the rest of Ireland, you would have had a mixture of sort of earldoms and Anglo-Norman families who control large areas of Ireland, uh, such as... Uh, in Kildare or the Earls of Desmond and then you would have had uh, native Irish chiefs as well who uh, still held large sway over the country so there was kind of like two different systems running within the one country uh, both battling kind of for supremacy so to kind of understand that time period we do have to take a little bit of a step back Uh, So we would have to kind of go back to about a century beforehand to work out why Ireland was such a, a, uh, why there was so much tension that was likely to boil over at any time, you know. It's putting Um, putting it very nicely, tension. There was some some tension. Uh, That sounds like a dinner party. Yeah, yeah. Ah. There were some massacres. Um, But basically, essentially, since the 12th century, kind of, English or Norman initially and then English control over Ireland, it kind of had ebbed and flowed. So there was times where uh, power was reinstated and other times where there was sort of a a Gaelic revival where the Irish chieftains sort of reimposed um, their will on areas and they also intermarried with the Normans. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't this the the Norman lords who were called the Old English? uh, Yeah. Many of them refused to convert to Protestantism. They they retained... Mm. Catholic identity. More Irish than the Irish themselves. That's exactly, the phrase, yeah, exactly the phrase. Yeah. Around, yeah. They, get, they get completely bought into Irish culture, so it's really a mess. Like. Yeah, and this obviously annoyed the English within yeah. the Pale uh, <laughs> because they wanted to use the Earls outside of Dublin as sort of a bulwark against the nat- native Irish, you know? Mm. Um, so this is a good kind of place to start is 1537, and Henry VIII, you know, him of all the wives, um, <laughs> you know, he was very, very annoyed because a particular earl, the Earl of Kildare, uh, Silken Thomas, um, he went on a big rebellion and it as failed. They fa- as they famously do in Kildare, Loverdale Rebellion, do the Fitzgerald. Mm, there you go. Uh, and <laughs> this is weird, this episode, because it's a lot of areas that we actually live in and we know <laughs> really well. So it's a bit of an odd one. But he- this uh, rebellion, just as... A lot of them did throughout Irish history. Bit of a, a bit of a trend. Uh, it failed, and Henry executed this famous Earl Silken Thomas. But he had a bit of a problem, I suppose, because to the uh, to the to the immediate west of Dublin and Kildare were kind of here be here be dragons for the English, so to speak. <laughs> so there's an area called Lee Shoffley, which was. Uh, run by the O'Connors and the O'Moore clans. And these are it's actually where I'm from. Uh, so I presume some of my ancestors were in, uh, involved in some of these, uh, probably in a very minor role, I'd say. To be honest <laughs> with you. Probably a bit of cattle raiding. But uh, yeah, they may have been mixed up in these events. But essentially, there was no longer any protection for the Pale from the wild I- Irish uh, that were outside this sort of um, English enclave. Um, so the Irish under the O'Moores and the O'Connors began to raid into Nace and Kildare and into 
uh, in and around the Pale. And the English under, at this time under Mary and Elizabeth, said, right, we're sick of this shit. We're taking the land, essentially, and we're going to plant it with good, helpful English and Scottish people. And they'll be fine because they will follow English customs, the English language, and they will be uh, president as well. Yeah. Um, so the idea was to sort of tame Ireland, which I suppose is a big theme in the film. Mm. Yeah. The whole thing. It's all about taming the land, yeah. Taming, and that kind of, a, the f- taming the land is a metaphor for taming sort of the Irish, I suppose, mm, as well, sure. under Cromwell's uh, way of looking at the world. Like, we, we call them the plantations or planta- planters. Uh, I think in a, in a non-Irish context, context we would call them colonizers. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think I've said it to you guys before, but like many consider this first plantation, this official one in Leash and Offaly, which which became Queen's County and King's County, they consider it kind of like a petri dish for the British Empire. Yeah, because this is when the British began to use sort of plantations for the first time officially, uh, which were funded by like the City of London and big business and this type of thing, and this would then this model which they didn't always, you know, the first couple of attempts, as we'll see, didn't really work out. But <laughs> they eventually refined it and used it to take over the world. So Yeah, yeah. so the, the, the design for those towns even is designs that were copied down for the colonies in Virginia and, and yeah. New England. And, and it's right? extraordinary when you look at, at the old maps of Leash and Offaly for the plantation. Like, the, the, for example, modern-day Port Leash, which is sort of the largest town in County Leash, um, it was originally called Fort Protector. So that will give you an idea of the like the colonial kind of idea yeah. behind this. Uh, so these were established as garrisons, which were then the idea would be to bring in uh, people from England and Scotland mm-hmm. to set up English farming practices. Loyal to the crown, religiously loyal to the crown, not Catholic, not looking to Rome. Exactly. And this all took kind of place in the 1550s. Um, but it didn't work in Leash and Offaly um, because they kind of made a mistake there wasn't enough people that came over from england because if you were in england and you're like okay why would i go and put myself in danger whatever about Lee, you're not going to awfully though please. <laughs> <laughs> um even if you're giving me a free farm like you've taken someone else's land they're mm. going to want to kill us yeah especially so, they're going to be wild sort of bog people that might want to and i can't even understand they don't even speak english shocking shocking so they attempted this colony uh in leash and offaly queens county kings county it didn't really work out they eventually gave land to the native irish and this was sort of their mistake because gradually uh the irish uh who inhabited this area just basically began raiding again yeah. <laughs> they we used to go back into the mountains the sleeve bloom mountains we call the mountains in leash they're hills okay uh, they're not mountains anyone who's driven through leash knows there's no mountains in leash but anyway, um and they uh, yeah so eventually the irish who lived there uh, began to attack the settlements uh, take them back and the it, this first attempt was a massive failure just going to a little bit of colour about it, um, there was sep- there was seven seps of leash. Mm. And these were kind of the major families of leash called the O'Moores, the O'Lawlers, um, O'Dempsey's. There's kind of famous names around leash even to this day. And th- they had kind of retaken control of these parts of leash that they'd been dispe- dispossessed from. And the English uh, decided to negotiate with them. So they invited them all to a place in Kildare in uh, 
1577, so a few years later, um, called Mullah Mast. And they said, okay, come here, we'll come to some sort of an arrangement. And this is when it gets very Game of Thrones. These seven leaders turned up and they were butchered. Sorry, are we talking about Braveheart now, or this is basically the same as the, the first same of sort of? I was just yeah. trying to think of like what's the that song? You know the 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 reigns of Castamere. Yeah, So they eventually they eventually they massacred the kind of leading families of the area, mm. um, and yeah. that was sort of a signal of to what the future direction would be. They then went on to establish later a colonies in Munster and eventually Ulster. Colony in Munster wasn't much of a success either, um, but the Ulster one, as has been very important for Irish history um, <laughs> and Northern Irish history, has you know continued to have an influence on the islands to this day. It was an extremely successful colonization project. Yeah, yeah. So that's the that's Northern Ireland there for, for anyone <laughs> who doesn't get the subtext of that. that and one now we're we'll talking about the Irish. No, <laughs> uh, but just before, anyway, getting back to where Mark was talking. To, so just about 10 years before Cromwell arrives in Ireland in uh, the film, uh, which is why we're here, I suppose, <laughs> um, in 1641, there was another one of our famous rebellions oh, here yes. in Ireland. Another rebellion. Keep trying. Keep there trying. you go. Mm. This might be my, this is probably my second favourite one. <laughs> <laughs> my second favourite Irish rebellion. Top five history. <laughs> yeah. uh, Top well, five Irish rebellions. Well, I mean, the United Irishman's obviously the best one. Like. Yeah. That's, that's clearly the best one. <laughs> Um, and this is, I suppose, we can't really look at this rebellion outside of the fact that the last hundred years had been spent trying to plant Ireland yeah. with colonizers. So there was a huge amount of tension in the area, particularly in the north of Ireland, which had been the most sort of uh, Gaelic kingdom left in the whole of Ireland. Very fiercely, fiercely holding to old customs and old, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So the, this event, there had been a war there, the Nine Years' War. We don't need to go into it, but the earldoms of Ulster, uh, they were dispossessed, and there was a famous thing in uh, 1607 called... Yeah, if there's, a, if there's a Patreon, like, we'll go into it. Exactly. <laughs> it was the, but the, the, the native Irish leadership had left the country, so to speak, um, by this time. But a... The uh, rebellion broke out in 1641. A guy called Phelim O'Neill, he se- seized control of uh, Charlemont Castle in Tyrone. And then he, he kind of, what was different was, we said there was a different groups uh, living in Ireland at this time. This native Irish group joined forces with what was called the Old English, so the Catholic English who refused to convert um, to pro- Protestantism. Um, and they went on a massive uh, rebellion all across the country, which is really important because at this time there was uh, a thing called the Ulster Massacres, uh, which is really important to understand how Cromwell you know, could justify what he did in Ireland a few yeah. years later. So essentially, Ulster had been an extremely... Um, the plantation of Ulster, so bringing over people from Scotland and England, had been extremely, extremely um, successful. And large numbers had come, partly because there was actually a um, famine in Scotland. So, you know, they were told you couldn't stay here and, uh, you know, etch out a living in Scotland or we'll give you all this brand new land over across the sea. Mm. So, you know, it was a more um, tempting proposition, (laughs) so to speak. Um, 
And but there was a large scale massacre. Like the native Irish went on the rampage and they they massacred thousands of Protestant settlers uh, in the north of Ireland mainly. Um, at the time, there was estimates Cromwell and his propagandists would have said there was like two hundred thousand people killed. Most estimates now range from around five to twelve thousand people, but it was ethnic cleansing. Yeah, like you know, I, I would say, on, like there was on both sides. The entirety, yeah. the entirety of the English Civil War. Uh, now, this is obviously separate from Ireland, but just the English Civil Wars um, is about two hundred thousand dead. So the idea that there was two hundred thousand dead in massacres in Ulster is a slight exaggeration. Exactly, it yeah. is funny though because, like you know, you've touched on it briefly there, Mark. But like, I'm from Connacht, and uh, which is like really suffered at the hands of Cromwell yeah. um, and you learn he's like what was it you said like the Irish Hitler yeah, like yeah. Um, he Ireland, is sure. the scum of the earth when you learn about history in Ireland but you don't learn about that like you yeah. don't learn oh, about yeah. what and was done to the planters but this is a big reason for the well it's a, this is obviously just opinion or whatever but it's a big reason people believe in the, the siege mentality that exists in the mm. north, of, north of Ireland in some communities today uh, the fact that this fear of being overwhelmed um, and massacred, you know, um, which is understandable. And a lot of this, as Mark said, a lot of this en- enmity between the two groups, you know, it obviously had religious uh, background as well, but it's just na- this literally fear of one of another and uh, turning. It's always easier to massacre another people if you turn them into something that is other, you know? Mm. Yeah, you other, uh, other, the, the, other yeah. the group. Yeah, yeah so, th- so this sort of, this particular massacre about 10 years before, um, was used by Cromwell to say, okay, I've reestablished control over um, Britain, and now I'm off to the Third Kingdom, which is very unruly and rebellious, and I am going to mete out justice on the Irish. I'm going to put them down. Exactly, and that's where the film opens. (laughs) And how did that go? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I mean, just just, I I would just say on on Cromwell's, uh, what the English would call settlement of Ireland, um, the brutality of it is debated. Um, certainly there was there was a siege of the in the in the Irish town Drogheda, um, and no quarter was offered to. So typically, when you when you siege a town in in, in history, in hit not you, but when somebody has <laughs> sieged a town in history, it's been, it's been a while. At Michael, when you siege a town in the Crusades, um, no, when you, when you uh, when you when a general would siege a town, um, you would usually offer terms you know it, it, it's not normally the case where there's, there's like most sieges don't end in an attack they usually end in a, in a negotiated uh, surrender that, that's typically what happens in Drada, like there, there's like it was just a massacre like there was there was they offered to surrender he refused it and he, he carried out real real brutality in Drada, but not just in Drada. we marched south then and did the same thing to Waxer. Now Wexford will, will, will Wexford people will tell you we never we never offered surrender fuck him like you know but they he really really brutal brutal massacres were carried out in Wexford and when the, the the Irish Confederate that's the rebel forces when they were put down the English Parliament which were controlled by Cromwell of course brought in uh, an act called the uh, the Settlement of Ireland Act and that's where sort of Connacht comes into the picture because essentially what happens is the English. Uh, Parliament says that Catholics cannot inherit land or own land anywhere east of the Shannon. You just couldn't have land, and this is where this is where the real cultural memory of hatred for for the English comes from. In, in my in, in my opinion, um, and they they force out 
Catholics from the good land that's in the centre and, and, and the east and the northeast in, in, in Ireland. And they are pushed west in a phrase that's referred to as the, the Irish can go to hell or they can go to Connacht. Yeah. yeah, just as somebody from Connacht, or if you're not from Ireland, it's important to note that the land is shite where I'm from. It's, well, it's very stones scenic. and bogs and mountains. You can't beautiful. eat scenes, my You can't eat scenery. You can't eat, you can't eat rocks, <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, it's bog and mm. heather. And yeah. It's that gorgeous, uh, like it's tourism now. Like, But, mm. you know, when we were such an agrarian society, you were effectively condemning whoever went there to starvation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, as well they knew. As yeah, well they knew. Yeah. That was, that was, the, that was the point, like. We keep all the good land and the savages can have Connacht. Yeah. But also remember that the, 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 the patches of good land in Connacht, uh, there is some, obviously, but they're already controlled by people. So yeah. a flood of, of, of disinherited, uh, beggared Catholics arriving, in, like, where are they going to go? The land is owned by people already. So anything that's arable is already owned. So that's why you have generational, large-scale migration of Irish from Connacht and it's also where uh, in the following centuries where a lot of the British uh, military get their manpower from because you had to join the army because what the hell else were you going to do mm-hmm. you'd start you know and to put it into context like be just in terms of this dispossession of the land um, in 1641 so just uh, say pri- with, at, around the time of this uh, rebellion uh, about three-fifths of the, our Ireland was, was still owned by the native Irish the land uh, but by 1709, so you're talking, what, 60, 60, 70 odd years later, it was down to 14%. So this massive dispossession obviously um, had an immense traumatic effect on yeah. the country mm. as well. But it also, I think it's important to say, it led to famine, you know, massive famine. And although Cromwell is famous for massacring towns and butchering people and all this type of thing, it was the famine that they reckon caused you know, 40% of the island's oh, yeah. population. Like, 40% is not nothing. The whole island's population was uh, wiped out in a couple of years, you know? Yeah. So he left his mark, did Cromwell. <laughs> so, yeah. So, naturally, the English are like, let's put a statue of this guy outside the parliament. Yeah. yeah. And when you're, uh, I mean, in the film, as we talked about, there's this bit of a theme of taming the wild. There's a lot of forests being cut down to turn into uh, plantation land, I assume. And uh, I assume that's a real thing. I do feel like I've heard it many times since moving here. There's a sort of sadness towards the lost wooded lands that were once here, right? Because Ireland, if you look at it now, it's all fields pretty much. But much like this film is about, uh, there's a lot of mysticism and things, but it's about uh, a hunter who has the job of taking out the last wolf pack uh, in Ireland as well. So like mm. that's part of the theme and we'll get into the uh, religious or mythical connotations. But is this right that there was a lot of yeah deforestation around this time? Mm. And uh, yeah, as we said, it's sort of a met- metaphor, right, for what's uh, the, t- the taming of the people. Yeah, well, if you think about it logically, you know, um, first of all, like you can't grow crops where there's forests. Uh, and then second of all, if you have sort of raving bands of uh, native Irish people coming and killing all your cows, if they can't escape into forests, they're easier to hunt down. We'll so. go to the mountains. Those are hills. Shut up, they're mountains. <laughs> they're covered in trees. Nobody can see us. This is fine. But I mean, I mean, famously in the early um, medieval period, Ireland was 80% forest. 
Yeah. Just think, think about how significant that is. It would take you weeks to get anywhere. Mm. <laughs> just, we and it also with the, the that was the only yeah. you know, yeah. like with our understanding now of how, um, like ecological, like how our ecology systems work. When you get rid of all of the trees in areas, you know, we don't really have any wild wolves anymore. Mm. You know, like they do in Sweden or any of those, like a deer or stag or anything like that. It's completely changed the way that the geography of the country even functions. It was it was it was an aggressive act of colonialism to 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 quote unquote settle the island into something that the crown could find useful to itself at the expense of the ecology and the local people, customs and culture. Yeah, and speak- nice wrapping up there, man. <laughs> That's lovely. And speaking of the local customs and cultures, like as I said, there's a lot of like watch the film, you get the details, but essentially there's. Uh, a, a tribe of people who can kind of meld with wolves, control them, slash in their sleep become wolves, that sort of thing. And beyond just the trees, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I get a bit of a sense of, from Irish culture in general, the, the sort of sadness of losing Celtic traditions and mythology and things like that as Catholicism and, you know, Christianity in general came in, which would be a thing in... Uh, the Nordics and I mean most places mm. there's sort of a mm. revival movement of trying to figure yeah, out what was yeah. actually what were the traditions actually like but much like the Vikings I believe uh, the Celtic peoples they uh, they weren't big on writing shit down first right, thing I've so. written down in my notes here is they didn't write shit down which makes this really hard yeah, um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's an oral tradition story yeah. um, so like in Ireland you had um, one of the few places where you know we, as much as Michael might have loved to have seen it we didn't have crusades um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Irish, like Irish, uh, native Irish populations kind of were gradually converted to Christianity, but it means that a lot of the sort of pagan or Celtic myths were sort of blended in with Christian iconography. So if you look back, say things like the Book of Kells, um, it's Christianity that you're reading, but in terms of the decorative elements, that's like pagan, Christian, like not work or any of that kind of crack, which also is probably partially Viking as well in nature. Um, But when we talk about Celtic mythology, like it's obviously experiencing a revival now with all of us crusty hippies being interested in it again. Um, But it's kind of um, hard to talk about from a historical sense. It's kind of stories that we tell ourselves about what we think happened there because nothing is written down. And it starts to be diluted with the Roman invasion of Britain. Um, because even though we do say that <laughs> Hibernia, as we were referred to by the Romans, um, wasn't really invaded, there was still kind of a cultural dilution there. We were like a little island that we just kind of fed off our own little, um, I don't know. Mouse wheel. <laughs> yeah, our own little feedback, feedback loop. Um, yeah, whereas, you know, when when the Romans invaded, they also, you know, brought other cultures to the shores. And then we also had, you know, the sort of gradual infusion of Christianity. Um, when people say, I know this is one of your particular bugbears, Mark, if I'm not wrong, when people say Celtic, <laughs> we're not referring, people don't refer to a group of people like an ethnicity. It's a group of languages. So that when, you know, you would have had, the Gauls would have been considered Celts back in the day. Uh, But there's traces of even older cultures like Stonehenge, Newgrange, both of which were pre-Celtic. They were built about, say, 5,000 years ago, whereas what we refer to as the Celts only arrived maybe 3,000 years ago. But we tend to like put all of those cultures into the same bucket um, because they all look very 
Celtic uh, to our eyes. Newgrange, I don't think, is that well known outside of Ireland, if you want to oh, yeah. touch on it briefly. Because <laughs> Jake has been dying to go. Um, yeah, so, you know, we have... Um, well, have you not been? Oh, you gotta go to Newgrange. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, it's about five thousand years old. Yeah, New, Newgrange is like yeah. older than the pyramids. Like, yeah. mm. you know, yeah. like it's very, very. Which is why I think it's worth highlighting on our podcast that is isn't listened to internationally, even though most <laughs> people are in Ireland. Um, but it's like, yeah, one of those things you just go like, oh yeah, there were you know with their herbs or whatever <laughs> fucking around. Yeah, but it's so old that we wouldn't even have a concept of what life was like to mm, construct yeah. what is the point of this building there's they're completely um yeah people are completely stabbing in the dark you know when you yeah. go to the place there you're reading about yeah on the winter and the summer equinox is the equinox or the solstice? yeah, yeah. Solstice, the solstice i think um the yeah. light shines directly down is it a 17 or 19 foot passageway that is all decorated in these like mad um pagan spirals and motifs and stuff and historians are just like yeah it was probably religious in nature yeah they don't know they're literally you know? just like yeah it's <laughs> probably something to do with the stars um, really but know. from what um from what we do know um there's like animal sacrifice would have been a large part of it uh, it hasn't seemed to have come back in fashion um with our like, pagan revivalism um a lot of the accounts that we have uh are from roman sources so you can imagine you have to take that with a pinch of salt as well obviously because we bit of bias there from yeah. The yeah so there is there are reports of human sacrifice mm-hmm. uh particularly in wales apparently um there would have been wouldn't have had it here of course um but oh, you know. so we wouldn't be behaving like that <laughs> well so only savages um so um, all the bog bodies they found in ireland you know the no michael they just tripped out. and fell in yeah. <laughs> okay okay wait, wait, wait. bog bodies are these bodies you found in a bog because that's what yeah, it sounds like preserved the uh, the nature of the bog and whatever i don't know chemical makeup is in the bog it's preserved their bodies very very well and they're very creepy to look at yeah, even right. the, the hair is preserved Ireland, it's so yeah. weird um Theater teeth, the their skin and everything yes. it's crazy so wait, when you refer to yourself as a bog woman are you telling me you've just walked out of the bog fully formed and you're actually from thousands of years ago? You cannot prove that. Okay. <laughs> Much like so historians. With the turf and- off are all right. <laughs> yeah. That's a no comment. <laughs> um, so from what we do know, um, like in the Celtic regions, shall we say, so you're talking like Breton, uh, in France, Ireland is probably, well, we would say is the most famous of, but you know, when you say Celtic, people tend to think of like Ireland in general, but you'd also be including Wales and bits of Scotland there that um, there's over 200 gods um, that we have some record of. So we're not probably going to talk about all of them. Um, I don't imagine. Again, if there's a Patreon. (laughs) So the ones that we would know in Ireland would be the two of the Danan, the tribe of gods, the kind of like our pantheon, um, and they like when I was doing research on them, I looked online and one of the top articles was, were they gods or were they aliens? So, you know, um, <laughs> what did they contribute? Um, but we do still have the holidays. And it's really interesting when you mentioned there about like the bonfire um, being the 5th of November in the UK. That would be a big one uh, in pagan calendars. So you have uh, Lunasa, a uh, big harvest you had Baltana Samhain which we now know as Halloween Halloween um they stole it from us the Christians yeah 
it's way better when we had it all was the better when theme. it was turnips and not pumpkins I don't it's care a what theme you know throughout all of these they're all co-opted kind of thing like you have May 1st which is a big day in Catholicism to celebrate the Virgin Mary you have uh, Samhain Halloween All Souls Day November 1st Imbolc which is the 1st of February St. Bridget's Day um, but one's re- one really interesting I found during the research was the 1st of May and the 1st of November. Um, so you have obviously Baltana and Samhain on the pagan ca- calendars. They're not really important dates for crop harvesting. Like in Europe, you know, there's not really any reason to celebrate them. But they are important dates in the Celtic calendar. Um, and then that kind of indicates that it was a society that relied heavily upon cattle. So on those dates, you would have been putting cattle out to pasture and then bringing them down from, say, mountainous regions or maybe sheep or whatever. And that would still follow on to today. It is all about cattle, (laughs) if you're from where I am, Ads. (laughs) But that's the thing in in the myths as well, if you read them right. It's about, you know... there was like that's how you measure someone's wealth is yep. how much cattle they have it's all Still about stealing Jacob. cattle from one oh, another is big yeah. thing. our our version of the iliad uh the tain is all about uh basically robbing someone else's cow <laughs> <laughs> can't ride a coolie yeah it was yeah. a particularly good cow though like, well, yeah. it should be sad yeah. like. <laughs> so as you can you know uh, a lot of this would have been like celebrated like big feasts um a lot of talk of fertility warding off fairies um you know small small animals letting them out to pasture all the rest of this crack not super in line with puritanical uh cromwell <laughs> yeah, you can see a clash here with cromwell. a cultural clash yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah yeah um so like that's very much a theme of the film you know the the kind of separation from nature um with this very sort of straight laced ideology um and that's where we kind of come to wolf walkers so like the actual origin of the story behind wolf walkers is the werewolves of ossery um which you'd know yourself michael my part of the world (laughs) so a kingdom in between the kingdoms of munster and leinster um from you're talking 1500 to just when cromwell came really it would have been a kingdom um ruled by sort of Norman, it would have been, you know, native Irish originally. And then, you know, those who became more, nor- more Irish than the Irish themselves, the Norman married them Irish. In. Married them in, they look like they have money. <laughs> <Yeah>. Married them <laughs> in. Um, so Ossery was a uh, modern day Kilkenny and a bit of leash as well. So that's why obviously Michael would know the region. Um, so there would have been high kings of Ireland. It seems that the way that the kingdom of Ossery survived, because it is tiny when you see it in comparison to Munster and Leinster, they never really vied for the high kingship. Mm. They were kind of like... They were vassals. We are where we are. We're grand. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But this story really kind of plays into, like you mentioned earlier, the wild Irish kind of trope or that kind of cultural difference in between the native Irish and the settling um, straight-laced puritanical Christians. So from... Obviously, all of these stories are from an oral tradition, so we only ever see them through the lenses of other people's accounts of them, usually people who um, were not from Ireland. Um, so um, the first source on the werewolves of Ossery comes from a, I'm going to butcher this now, I'm sorry, Mark, but Topographica Hibernica and Expug- mm, Expugnatio Hibernica. That's actually not the worst I've heard, to be fair. That wasn't, okay. that wasn't bad. Thanks. It's Mark's <laughs> Twitter handle. <laughs> uh, and they did from 1188, uh, a fella called G- Gerald of Wales. Yeah. Gas name. Oh, <laughs> Gerald. Imagine. Oh, Jerry. 
Una of Mayo. Um, <laughs> so basically, it tells the story. This guy, Gerald of Wales, his whole shtick was that he just went around, traveling around, uh, writing down. Basically, the lonely planet of uh, 1188. Excellent. Yeah. And he met a priest who apparently met a wolf in the woods, started talking to him. We're talking like a, uh, this would have been a Catholic priest. Um, Sorry, was he talking to the wolf? Or talking to a wolf, yeah. Met a wolf in the woods and the wolf started talking to the priest. So obviously the priest, bit shocked by this. Um, and then the man told him a spiel um, that every seven years he had to turn into a werewolf because he's cursed and um, probably St. Patrick, by some accounts, by just a random other priest, by other accounts, you know, we won't really get into it, specifics, oral traditions and all of that. But cursed by a Christian person. By then. a Christian yeah. person, yeah. Um, and then... Um, How un-Christian. Yeah, not yeah. cool, I would argue. Uh, more colonialism, Mark, if you will. And then um, he brought the priest back to, to meet the wife, who was also a werewolf. And um, <laughs> just imagining the scene here, <laughs> because his what the wife was. Where have you been? <laughs> the wife wasn't well or something. The priest had to go and cure the wife. Um, not super clear. Not the best translation anyone's mm. ever read from eleven eighty eight. But um, the priest met a what the werewolf wife and healed her. And um, basically, the moral of the story is in Christianity, great that they're able to do this. Um, but there's actually a really interesting um article I read bits of online uh, from Catherine Karkov, Tales of Ancient Colonial Werewolves and the Mapping of Post-Colonial Ireland, which, you know, just a light reading for the beach holiday, but really good because um, she kind of draws a lot of parallels, like like the metaphor of the Norman settlement of Ireland Mm. and like the Irish wildness being tamed by Christianity um, and like the the sort of regression of the Celtic paganism uh, to being more and more acceptable Christianity. Um, And then... (laughs) <laughs> um, this story obviously gets put written down which is rare enough in those those days but you can imagine these oral stories so there's a lot of kind of connection between the kingdom of Ossery and wolves in general you'd imagine that there were wild, wild wolves there uh, at that time but it gets repeated by another lad called Fines Morrison in the 17th century um, he wrote a book called Description of Ireland well I don't know it was a book or a pamphlet whatever it was and I have a quote from it here which I think you'll really enjoy um, it is ridiculous which some Irish who believe to be men of credit report of men in these parts yearly turned into wolves except the abundance of melancholy humour transports them to the imagine that they are so transformed which I stumbled over that there but basically the effect of which in the context of the wider thing I read was they weren't well worlds they were just shit crack um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, those are the accounts the, the kind of earliest accounts of um, the werewolves of Ossery so sorry were they saying that they they weren't they were not werewolves they were just they just like to pretend they were wolves or? well your man um the finds morrison uh basically he was like this is a ridiculous story i'm being told and it seems like they're actually just in bad form when they turn into wolves mm. which actually does support some of the other like kind of mythology taking on taking on the characteristics of a wolf like, yeah so sort pretty of much as he was like they just seem to be Rough and ready. Uh, and bear, bearing in mind that like, the Irish word for wolf is Moctira, son of the land. Son of the land. Yeah. As is her name in the yeah. film. And it's, 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 I think that's a reference to like they just sort of they become uncivilized. I think yes. Is what it's kind of become wild, yeah, become um, wild in yeah. nature. Yeah. So there's one particular sort of legendary um, folklore figure that kind of encapsulates that whole 
these stories that are spinning in that region for however long that they've been going for and it goes by the name I had to check with a whale girl friend of mine to make sure I didn't butcher this too badly but Leignac Fallid um, just really rolls off the tongue a bit of Irish for you there you wouldn't hear that every day these days but um, basically he was a legendary werewolf warrior and a relation of the King of Ossery so there's only kind of one source on this the core on on him Um, and he was described as a man who used to go into shapes of wolves and his offspring used to go after him and they used to kill herds um, after fashions of wolves. He he was the first of them to go into a wolf shape. So the ancient texts like phrase like go wolfing generally meant to like go hunting, cause mayhem and cattle. And obviously yeah. hunting without a license in general would yeah, be a you- thing, right? If you're being oppressed by well uh, like subjugated by a, a colonizing force then in general isn't that kind of the choice you have to either become one with the wild and the land mm. and take what you can get and then you're called wolf as opposed to yeah following the rules and starving yeah basically like so this guy he wouldn't have been he wouldn't have been in the cromwellian era shall we sure. say we're talking in like 150 like that that year <laughs> it would have been roughly around when we think that this person, if they existed, existed. But um, it's kind of like a theme you'll see, like um, ancient warriors in Ireland, when you're looking at the actual Irish text written about them, would have been kind of referred to as um, wolf-like in nature when they were in battle, when they were going up against other clans or other kingdoms or whatever the case may be. And that seems to be the situation with this guy, uh, Leignac Follett. Um it is interesting that the traditional werewolf stories, all of them that, you know, we're used to are like, you know, on the when the full moon's out, you turn into a werewolf and your body turns into a werewolf or whatever. Whereas like the Irish ones that we seem to have any record of do seem to follow the same logic as the movie in that your body is left behind and you go off as a wolf, you go wolfing and any injuries sustained to your body, you know, no spoiler. Well, you know don't want to cause any spoilers but if you hurt your body in wolf form you're it's a connection to your body it's yeah. just another format of your kind of spirit kind of thing yeah. um and then just to kind of bring down the sort of mysticism crack there's a lot of uh historians who just can't seem to let a bit of magic be and the theory behind <laughs> it is is uh, that when they went when they went sort of raiding other cattle and raiding other parties, they just dressed up like wolves and they wore wolf skins. So that's Fair enough. It that's from. it. That's it. <laughs> Job done. <laughs> Boring. But we can just decide that they're you know we can we can choose to live in the uh, universe of um, cartoon saloon instead. You know yes. that's okay. Would you rather hear the, the, the truth or the myth? The myth. You tell the legend. You Absolutely. The legend. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of that, telling the legend. I mean. Like, as you were saying, Ossery would be modern day Kilkenny, which is where Cartoon Saloon is yes, based. What about mm. And yeah, I, I know we've been gushing over this film, but I just want to emphasize again, I feel like there's a lot of culture and heritage in uh, like these myths that we feel is kind of forgotten, um, like same with Norse mythology and similar. And it's great to have as opposed to for Norse mythology, where we just have Marvel films where they're all aliens, <laughs> touches on what you were saying earlier about the, were they aliens? Um, as opposed to that, we have like a animation studio that's Irish and they make things that are really like in tune with 
like the themes and the style and everything yeah. is kind of in line with retelling this these stories that you're talking about and reframing them in a modern way mm. while retaining that history and culture. And so I just think it's uh, it's an amazing work of art and I'm happy that it uh, exists. I um, I also think something that we haven't really touched on um, at all um, is the music in, in yeah. that film. Well, in all of the films, but in that film, like Kilkenny is a real stronghold of traditional Irish music. Mm. And one thing I think Keela do very well, like what you just said, like Cartoon Saloon, they do have the sort of traditional Irish music, but it's with a more kind of modern spin on it. Experimental or something even. Yeah, Yeah. You would find their CDs in a section in a record store under world music. (laughs) You know know that type. If you found a record store, what decade are you from? (laughs) (laughs) It's like a a love letter to that mythology whilst also sort of um, putting it in a more modern context. You know, Mm. when you're talking about post-colonialism, that's Mm. language that didn't exist even. Yeah. You know, even 50 years ago it wasn't as well understood as it is now yeah. um and i think that the reason that the film probably doesn't bother with all of the you know details of the actual history which we, we've gone into detail is that it fits into a broader archetype when you're looking at kind of um native people in any region and the big bad coming in obviously it's a lot more complex than that but it does fit into kind of a broader um sort of parable Mm. Yes. Yeah, I'm just thinking of Mel Gibson doing the same film over and over. The Patriot, Braveheart, <laughs> like yeah, it's we were same. soldiers. Yeah. But it, but yeah. you're right. Like it it it's a it's an understandable story no matter where you're from. I'm glad we've gotten a bit more into the detail though, because I wouldn't have known. I don't know anything about history, but I wouldn't have known all of this. Um, but I think I think like uh, cultures that 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 suffered from you know colonialism and things, the 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 interesting elements of them and the storytelling and stuff is. That's a like storytelling and creation of movies and and legends and things like that. That's a better way of preserving the past mm. and cultures that are inherent to you that maybe aren't to the forefront of, of your of your modern life. That's a better way to, to do it than you know learning off reams of dates and and who was the king at this time yeah. and who was the king of Ossory and the high king and all of that nonsense. Like it's much better to learn a true story. You retain it in a better way. The narrative is is, is king always when it comes to understanding things. Absolutely. I think that's lovely. Maybe we'll wrap it up on that. But I did want to ask, does anyone have any final thoughts on, I don't know, because we're kind of leaving it as like, yeah, I mean, Ireland, there's a lot more to be said about the 1600s up until now, which we won't have time to get into. But I did want to say, obviously, beyond the pale as a term is from this, right? Because the pale yep. is this area I am around Dublin. literally beyond the pale yeah. as Azuna. I'm very yeah. much so. Very, she's yeah. more beyond the pale than me. <laughs> Which I, I think, if you're an international listener, you would, would have heard that term most likely. It just means... That's beyond the pale. That's outside yeah. the normal yeah, realms of acceptable behavior. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but is there anything we want to leave on as far as when Cromwell died, what happened uh, with Ireland, etc.? Well, he didn't die by being thrown from a mystical uh, waterfall by Sean Bean uh, as yeah. an animagus wolf walker. Hashtag spoilers. That didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, that did not happen. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, Is uh, that the thing that didn't happen the most? That didn't happen. It had to be mentioned. Just in case you watched that movie and that's all you ever knew about Cromwell. He did not die in a magical waterfall. No, no. Uh, he d- he died from sadness because his daughter died. Apparently, I thought it was Satan coming to collect him. Yeah, that, I mean that's my preferred version. But again, that's that's a, that's an instance of narrative. Rather, for a minute there, I thought you said syphilis, and I was like, served him right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it was Sad rife at the time, you know, so it yeah. would have been rife in the 1600s. Um, no, I, all I would say is is that, like, the the, the understanding of Irish history, um, certainly in Ireland, but definitely with the diaspora, definitely with, like, Irish Americans or Irish British people or Irish Australians or whatever, but the, the, the sort of the sadness and the, the sort of the, everything is very forlorn and all of that. This... These centuries we're talking about, if the the fifteen, sixteen, and seventeen hundreds, I think is is really where a lot of that comes from. Like, um, because while Cromwell is, is is maybe the height of it, uh, the seventeen hundreds were, were were no picnic either. I mean, it, it's like after Cromwell dies, like I said, there's another revolution in England where they put a, a different king because there's a Catholic and it becomes a big mess, and that's part of a, a broader European wide war. But there's several more massacres in Ireland, and the Catholics are dispossessed again and you know excluded from realms of power and, and whatever so i mean if you've an interest in, in in irish history I, I would say uh the plantation is actually an interesting place to start mm. because while it is 500 years it's a lot of the really really interesting stuff if you even just looked 1500 to 1800 you've got you've got a really fascinating period and it'll give you a good Raleigh understanding of our culture i think was we're knocking around here before he went to walter Raleigh, uh, yeah to virginia yeah. you know before so he went over it's yeah. where he learned his trade yeah <laughs> Yeah, so uh, a lot to unpack, but I've I've uh, I've had a great time learning about some of this with you. So thank you so much. We have much. to bring you to Newgrange now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. Next recording will be live from Newgrange. Um, <laughs> Definitely need some kind of a government license to do for that. the finale. Yeah. No <laughs> chance. Um, so any sources we want to recommend or point people to for learning more about this sort of thing? God, I, I, I'm sort of tempted to just point people towards like the history books we study in, in secondary school in Ireland, but off the top of my head, I can't even. Pink. I'll, I'll put something in the in the show and I'll start for the link. Mm. Yeah, I do have a big book on the plantations of Leash, but uh, you know it's very niche. I'll put in. I don't I can't even remember the name of the author, but we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> As you can tell, we a lot of this is, uh, yeah, just through the osmosis of living or growing up here. You kind of gather is, this, like people, like say people in the UK would learn about uh, the Tudors. That's like the defining character. My mum was educated in the UK. She says all I remember is Henry VIII and all oh, his yes, wives yeah. and all the rest of that. Yeah. Like the plantations is that for us, I would say. Like yes. the plantations is the defining Absolutely. lesson in yeah. your primary school education, yeah. you know. Um, I don't know what the equivalent would be in the US, but that like the Civil War Civil probably. War, yeah. uh, it is kind of the defining historical thing that we all learn about. But in terms of what I would recommend is the, the scraps of that that I did manage to glean off the internet, that book of... Uh, Colonial Werewolves and the Mapping of Post-Colonial Ireland was really good. <laughs> Sounds like a fucking page-turner, all right. Um, Stock and filler. Fair play to but Catherine. I, but I mean, if you were interested in ju- just in Cromwell, I mean, there's, an, there's innumerable biographies of the guy because he, he's, like, I, I've said about various characters we've talk, spoken about in different episodes. He's a culture hero, actually. He's Marmite. To, to the English. Yeah, a lot of people <laughs> hate him. Like, a lot of people hate him. <laughs> oh. you'll, find, you you'll, find, yeah. you'll find, broadly speaking, in, in Britain, like the left wing will not be a fan and the right wing would be a fan. Broadly speaking. Mm. But yeah. Are those Hilary Mantel books about him? No, no so no. Hilary Mantel's books are about Thomas Cromwell. Yeah. Oh, okay. Very easy his, to mix them up, though. I've done it myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Thomas Cromwell is his, is his great, great grandmother's brother. Oh. Well, wait for yeah. our episode on Wolf Hall, which will undoubtedly <laughs> come out at some point because they made it a TV show. It's a pretty good TV show. It is show. amazing. Yeah. That's an amazing oh, show. I didn't so, know that. that oh, could be a thing. It's so good. <laughs> Before we spin completely out of control, thank you all so much for your time and for your effort. And I think for now, 
Uh, just leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts, tell a friend about the show, and visit showswhatyouknow.com for all of our other episodes. But yeah, for now, that's the end of the reel. Cheers. Take it easy. Bye. Bye.